Welcome back to the Dersh Show. You know, when I was uh, growing up, um, the most important committee of Congress was the House on American Activities Committee. It destroyed the lives of so many innocent people. It uh, pressured uh, television stations to take people off who were suspected of, of communism. It was called Red Channels. Uh, there was a blacklist. Um, Witnesses were summoned to the committee and asked about their friends. Uh, privileges that they might have had weren't taken uh, seriously. And of course, we gave a name to uh, this phenomenon. It was called McCarthyism, even though Senator McCarthy was in the uh, upper house, not the lower house. Um, his influence was felt throughout, throughout Congress. There was also a Senate committee, but the House on American Activities Committee was the more influential, more dangerous, and caused more harm. Now, I don't want to make direct comparisons between the House on American Activities Committee and the January 9th uh, House Committee that is now scheduled to uh, hold televised hearings with a retired TV producer kind of directing it on Thursday night. By the way, the only good thing is the Celtics aren't playing on Thursday night, so I can, I can watch it without avoiding my cheering for my, my home team. Um, but um, what's going on with the House on American Activities Committee, uh, the new version, uh, really does uh, invoke, invoke comparisons. Now, there are differences. Um, the House on American Activities Committee was uh, chasing a phantom. I mean, communism was there. It existed in the United States. It certainly was a serious threat all over Europe. Uh, the Soviet Union had taken control of all of Eastern Europe, much of Central Europe, uh, part of uh, uh, even Southern Europe, uh, and uh, Cuba, uh, and some other places in South and Central America, like China. And uh, you know, Khrushchev said, we will bury you. Uh, there were real concerns. Uh, Stalin was, was uh, dying and dead, um, but... Uh, his successors were threatening. They were a, a great nuclear power. When, when we were in elementary school, we had, you know, duck and hide drills. We had to go under our desks as if that would protect us from a nuclear attack. It reminds me a little bit of some of the shooting, shooting drills that are going on now, you know, hide under your desk, keep the door locked. Um, some of it may help, some of it may not help. Um, in any event, uh, the goals of the January 6th committee are, are much more positive. I mean, nobody wants to see a recurrence of people going into the uh, Capitol. Nobody wants to see uh, a recurrence of, um, of some of the kinds of uh, violence and, and, and uh, uh, rhetoric uh, that, that we saw. And it's perfectly legitimate for Congress to hold reasonable hearings to try to get to the causes of uh, some of the January 6th disruptions. Um, they should also hold hearings as to other disruptions. Obviously, what happened when Black Lives Matters um, um, inflicted much greater damage physically, not, not politically or emotionally, but physically much greater damage in, in some Western uh, cities and um, even some Eastern uh, uh, cities and, and other radical organizations. I mean, I've been the victim of some of the radical hard left organizations like, like Atifa. And, th you know, the investigations ought to be fair, but Congress has the constitutional power to investigate. 
they don't have is the constitutional power to set up a kangaroo court called uh, a committee. I mean, under the rules of the House of Representatives, generally, say if the House is 60-40 um, uh, um, Republicans or 60-40 Democrats, then the um, committees are supposed to be 60-40 or 55-45 uh, the committee membership is supposed to represent um, the numerical balance uh, in the House, not this committee. This committee is 100 uh, percent anti-Trump. Um, most of them are Democrats. There are two what are called Republicans, and they vote Republican on many issues. But when it comes to Trump, they don't vote with the Republicans. They vote with the Democrats. Now, you know, I have no no. Uh, favorable views of what happened on, on January 6th. As I've said many times, I think the election was perfectly fair. It wasn't perfect. No election ever has been. But uh, Biden is our president and President Trump should have recognized that, still should recognize that. Um, I didn't like his speech on, on January 6th. And I didn't like the fact that uh, some people uh, went into the Capitol unauthorized. I don't like the way the police responded to it and the Justice Department responded to it and uh, keeping people in prison pending their trials. So we can talk about that on another show as as well. And I represent one of the people who went in, uh, did no damage, stayed there for a very short period of time and came out in an effort to protest what he believed was an unfair election. I disagree with him on his belief, but I don't pick my clients based on my beliefs or or their beliefs, but the, the, the committee is totally rigged and, and, and totally one-sided. And no one, no one should believe a word that comes out of the uh, committee reports. The committee reports are gonna be a profta. They're gonna be one-sided uh, attempts to create a narrative that supports one side of the story, not the other. It may not be strictly partisan because there are two Republicans, on the committee, but it will be strictly ideologically uh, biased uh, in favor of one narrative and against the uh, other uh, narrative. Um, and um, there are constitutional issues uh, as to the composition of the committee. There are statutory and rule issues. Courts have generally ruled against those uh, challenges. And then, as of course I talked about yesterday, there's the issue of the House issuing these uh, illegal subpoenas, um, which demand that um, people who are advising the president or have advised the president uh, disclose confidential uh, material. Um, the, the committee has based its uh, subpoenas on the absurd, absurd, uh, really dumb uh, argument that executive privilege invoked by one president can be waived by a subsequent a president. That is such a stupid argument. I mean, it's an argument Larry Tribe would make, um, uh, but it's not a serious, reasonable argument that anybody could uh, in any way take seriously. Only a partisan zealot would argue that President Biden has the power to rescind uh, privileged communications that occurred while somebody else was president. It would just completely eviscerate the privilege. Why would anybody talk to an advisor knowing that the next president could call in the advisor and, 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 and make him disclose what went on. You know, it, would, it would be as if a lawyer, a doctor, a priest, uh, anybody else, uh, once the conversation occurred, 
you could then say, oh, but we're changing the rules now and a new psychiatrist has come in or a new priest has come in and, and we're not going to have the, 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 the privilege accepted at this point. It is such a dumb argument. I challenge anybody to write to this show and try to justify that argument. It can't be done. It cannot be done. Only zealots who are talking to themselves in a silo could be making that argument. But that's the argument that the uh, Larry Tribe students um, who are on the committee and very active in, in, in democratic politics uh, uh, have been making. Uh, and, and nobody should take that argument in, in any way, in any way, seriously. So uh, the committee has acted illegally um, in demanding information, which is privilege. But then they double down and created a, 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 an even more serious constitutional violation by uh, seeking uh, indictments uh, of people without first going to the courts and uh, saying to the courts, look, here, there's a conflict. The executive says or said, the former executive says, this is privilege. I won't waive the privilege. Um, the current president says, we waive it for you. Uh, Congress says, we don't care about privileges. Um, the defendant says, hey, I can't disclose these things. It's Once you disclose it, you can't unring a bell. You can't put the toothpaste back in the, the tube. It's disclosed forever. You can't erase things from, from, your, from your mind or from the public record. So Clearly, everybody in the Justice Department knows that the right approach uh, to this conflict between the executive and the legislative uh, branches is to go to the courts and have the courts resolve it uh, at three levels. You have a district court in the District of Columbia make an initial decision. And if the judge decides that the subpoena is invalid, uh, throw it out. If the judge decides the subpoena is valid and the defendant has to answer those questions, then the judge can direct him to do so. At this point, he has two options. He can comply, um, three options, really. He can comply or he can appeal, which probably is what they would do to the Court of Appeals. Uh, Congress can put it on a fast track and say it's necessary to get the information now. And then up to the United States Supreme Court, or he could engage in an act of civil disobedience and simply refuse. Now, now what Peter Navarro was doing is not an act of civil disobedience, conceivably, he might engage in an act of civil disobedience, if not him, perhaps somebody else. But right now it's not an act of civil disobedience because the subpoena is invalid. Uh, there's no court order. Uh, he's not compelled to respond and answer privileged questions just because Congress uh, says uh, he is. And, um, you know, it's just what the House Un-American Activities Committee used to do. And Peter Navarro has said, look, I, I don't have enough money to really challenge this. And he said he's um, uh, going to be his own lawyer. I'm going to certainly offer him advice. Others will offer him advice. I offer advice to anybody who I think has had their constitutional and other rights uh, violated. I think uh, people should uh, support uh, Peter Navarro. I don't know Peter Navarro. I've spoken to him on the phone, but I don't know him. I probably disagree with almost all of his politics, and he probably disagrees with all of mine, but that's not my job to persuade him as to my liberal libertarian point of view, nor is it his job to persuade me of his conservative uh, point of view. Um, he has the right to have a judicial determination of his claim of privilege before he is compelled 
to waive the privilege. Not only does he have that right, but former President Trump has that right because it's his privilege. It's as if um, I confided to my rabbi and then the rabbi was called. It's not the rabbi's privilege. It's my privilege. I told the rabbi something I don't want anybody to know. I, I confided in him or I confided in my doctor or I confided in my lawyer. Uh, I don't want anybody to, uh, to know that. And uh, I have a right to prevent my professional from disclosing it, just as President Trump has the right to prevent anybody with whom he conferred in the White House about matters of, uh, that are covered by the Constitution. Now, you know, a court might hold conceivably that the privilege was waived or there was criminality involved. I'm not suggesting any of these things, but I'm saying a court has authority to void a privilege. For example, if uh, a client talks to a lawyer and they together plan a crime, that's not privileged information. Or if a man threatens his spouse uh, and commits violence on her, uh, the spouse can be called to testify about that. That's not privileged information. Um, but uh, here there's been no determination that the information is not privileged. And so Peter Navarro was doing the right thing. And when's the last time you heard somebody indicted for doing the right thing, for obeying the Constitution, for performing his or her duty uh, to a client or to a president? Uh, and yet that's what Peter Navarro has been indicted for, doing the right thing. Would I have done the same thing? Yeah, I might have written a more lawyerly letter. I've been a little bit more polite. And what I said, I might have written to the committee saying, uh, please uh, indicate all the questions you intend to ask me. And I will tell you which ones I can answer. You know, if the president asked me about the weather, I can answer that. But if he asked me about something that relates to the presidency, no, I can't, I, I can't answer that. Uh, as I say, I probably would have written a, a letter of some kind, but that's not required by, by the law. Uh, Congress simply cannot compel privileged information to be disclosed. Um, I had a case many years ago where Congress tried to do that, and we beat him, uh, the Imelda Marcos case. And I think that, that Peter Navarro probably will win his case as well, maybe not at the trial level, but certainly at the appellate level and I think beyond much doubt at the Supreme Court level if the Supreme Court decides to take the case. But in the meantime, he could be bankrupted. In the meantime, he was just treated horribly. The idea of dragging him off a plane, putting him in handcuffs, putting him in John Hinckley's cell, uh, subjecting him to a body cavity search, he says, and to uh, other humiliation. Generally, in a case like this, you hand a person a a summons and say, please appear in front of the magistrate judge tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. And, and they appear. That's certainly is what happened in every one of my cases. Uh, I've never had a client in situations like this uh, treated like a murderer or a robber or a, a drug addled uh, uh, violence doer. That's what uh, arrests are supposed to be for. They're not supposed to be for people who are uh, exercising their rights. And he, he was exercising his, his right uh, not to respond to questions about privileged information. So I worry, I worry about Thursday night. Um, you know, we saw televised uh, hearings before. We saw uh, how much damage they could do to a person's uh, reputation. Um, if he sits there and publicly invokes privileges, I don't think Peter Navarro will or should do this, but 
some people will invoke the privilege against self-incrimination, which in the mind of a lot of people says, oh, we're guilty. Um, that's not the case. I uh, often advise clients not to answer questions uh, that might lead to information, though I never advise my clients to take the fifth itself because taking the fifth is, is in the minds of many people, unfortunately, tantamount to a confession of, of guilt. Um, so I would obviously never myself take the Fifth Amendment and generally not advise a client to, to, to do so. But um, this is going to be a show on, on Thursday night. If I read the media correctly, the majority of the committee, which is the whole committee because there really is no minority, um, has uh, hired a former ABC uh, producer who produced, you know, some dramatic shows to try to make this into a production into something that people will want to watch so that they will hear one side of the story. I'm told that uh, Fox is not going to cover it. Uh, I think they probably should. Um, but let the American public see the spectacle that's going on and let them uh, respond. It'll be interesting to see how CNN and CNBC and uh, others uh, cover it, whether they will have um, people who are critical um, uh, of the hearings as part of the panel or will everybody will be cheerleaders and um, probably they'll just be cheerleaders. CNN, of course, never has me on anymore. I used to be, used to be a regular guest until I uh, uh, defended uh, the Constitution and, and President Trump's rights not to be impeached in front of the United States uh, Senate and until they doctored and distorted uh, what I said in front of uh, the Senate and I sued them. Uh, so I'm no longer available to CNN to tell the truth about what's going on in these hearings. But uh, one would expect that maybe some other stations would have uh, commentators on all sides to be able to uh, go over these issues and uh, analyze them and present a historical context of uh, House um, uh, committees and and uh, the dangers and the benefits. And uh, obviously there are some uh, benefits. Um, it would be interesting to see a congressional committee uh, dealing with um, with gun regulation, uh, dealing with both sides of that issue, dealing with uh, interpretations of the Second Amendment. Uh, obviously, reasonable people can disagree. For almost 200 years, the United States Supreme Court uh, had one view of the Second Amendment saying it was not a personal right, it was a collective right of a well-regulated militia. And then uh, in the Heller case, the Supreme Court just switched on a dime and said, no, there is an individual right uh, to bear arms uh, over the dissent of uh, several of the justices. It would be interesting to have congressional hearings uh, on this and to have both sides of the issue presented, to have some experts uh, present arguments based on, um, on empirical information, on studies, on experiences in other countries, as to what kind of regulations could, without interfering with the Second Amendment, perhaps reduce uh, the, the, the kind of weekend we had last week, the amount of violence we had in that one weekend in which there were several um, mass killings. Um, we've had, I think, 240 mass killings in this country just in, in this year. But uh, let's go back to the, the, um, the January uh, 6th committee. And so, my, my word is just to remember when you watch it, uh, there will be an attempt to manipulate you. There will be an attempt to influence you. There will be an attempt to mislead you. 
there will be a production. Uh, there will be professional producers whose job has been for years, you know, selling soap and cars. Now it's selling doctrines and um, um, and partisan and views. And I think each of you, when you watch it, should ask yourself if there were a real Republican or if there were uh, a Republican who is a defender of President Trump's speech on January 6th or what happened uh, afterward, if there were a defender there, what would he be asking? What would he be saying? Uh, you know, when I do a closing argument to a, a jury, I, I, I tell my students, what you have to do is tell them, look, the government always gets the last word. And while the government is speaking, I want you to imagine, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what I would say if I had an opportunity to rebut him, I want to make you me for purposes of analyzing the arguments in this case. I want you to sit there and say, gee, if Alan had a chance to rebut, what would he say to this argument? What would he say to the argument? Put, put yourselves in the position of what if there were a balanced presentation on, on both sides. And I think that's the advice I would give you uh, if and when you watch the um, hearings on Thursday night, ask yourself what um, what I would be asking, what you would be asking, what um, reasonable Republicans and reasonable defenders of, of Trump would be uh, would be saying, uh, and 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 um, ask yourself those questions, and ask yourself how the members of the committee would be would be answering. So it, it's going to be an interesting uh, night on uh, on Thursday night. I will probably uh, watch it uh, now that the Celtics are not going to be playing on Thursday night. And I don't know whether the Rangers will be playing or not, but uh, I'm going to, I'm going to watch the, the January um, 6th hearings just to get a sense of how basically unfair it's likely to be. Okay. Let's turn now to some letters. Um, this is a pretty extreme one. January 6th is a Democratic Stalin-type witch hunt for their political opposition. Make them pay when we put Republicans in charge of the House of Representatives in November. No, I don't think two, two rights make a wrong. Uh, two wrongs make a right. Uh, no, I think if the Republicans do take over, I, I hope they will act fairly. But, you know, they very well may not. They certainly didn't act fairly in the nomination of um, of. Uh, Merrick Garland, uh, as I've said yesterday, I'm disappointed in Merrick Garland. I thought he would do a better job in overseeing the Justice Department's prosecution of somebody like Peter Navarro. So I am disappointed and, and, and surprised. Um, but um, the Republicans, if they take over the House, may do similar things. Of course, the difference is the Democrats will still be in control of the Justice Department. So I doubt there'll be any indictments for people who have uh, fail to uh, respond to Republican-controlled subpoenas. All right, this letter is a, a little longer, but it's, it's quite thoughtful. <clears throat> I'm not sure it's unconstitutional. I am positive it's unconscionable. It's yet another instance of our Justice Department and FBI jackboot tactics to intimidate political opponents. I'm certain Navarro would have voluntarily turned himself in had he been asked to do so. I'm sure that's right. That, that, what threat did he pose? Uh, why did the FBI and Justice Department need to handcuff him in public, put him in leg irons and tell him he was in Hinckley's cell? The answer is simple, to intimidate, publicly shame and discredit the political opponent of the Democrats. The government used the same tactics against many others in Trump's administration. 
Stalin and Mao did the same thing to silence dissent. Professor Dershowitz, how can you support a party who would abuse power this way? I don't support the, the abuse of power. Uh, but for me, it's always, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? I personally cannot support a party that doesn't support a woman's right to uh, have an abortion, certainly at the early stages, that doesn't support gay marriage, that doesn't support reasonable gun control, that doesn't support reasonable environmental concerns, separation of church and state. I am a liberal Democrat. <clears throat> I have not abandoned the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has abandoned me, <clears throat> just the way Ronald Reagan said many years ago, I will continue to be a Democrat to try to influence the Democratic Party away from the extremists who now control at least one wing of it and will continue to vote a Democrat. But yeah, there may come a time when I've lost the battle completely and lost all hope, in which case I might switch. That's what happened to many uh, libertarians and liberals in England um, uh, during the last um, uh, s several years. Um, hmm? Oh, one last question. Okay, from my son, Elon. Yeah. Uh, the uh, MTA Alex um, reminds him of this BBC, BBC show called Guest Minister, which is very famous in England. And uh, it says, remember, never, uh, never call an inquiry unless you know the findings beforehand. No, that, of course, that's right. That's right. Um, lawyers are told don't ever ask a question unless you know the answer. I don't accept that. Uh, as a lawyer, I have asked questions that I didn't know the answer. And sometimes I've been positively surprised, sometimes negatively surprised. You have to weigh the costs and benefits of asking such a question. But certainly in this case, we know exactly what the uh, results will be. And the, uh, the hearings are a, a show trial. And uh, yeah. Um, I agree, Dershowitz, every good Democrat should be up in arms at the way they are treating Peter Navarro, but I haven't seen any good Democrats, have you? Yeah, I occasionally look in the mirror and I do see a good Democrat who stands up for the rights of Republicans, maybe even bad Republicans. I'm not saying that about Navarro, but I don't make judgments about people. Um, hopefully this will open up your eyes. Democrats are not the Democrats they were 20 years ago. Neither are Republicans. Uh, there are some dark forces, at least mass delusion that makes them work on destruction of this great country. But you can say the same, maybe not to the same degree, but there is an extremist wing of the Republican Party that isn't the same as the Rockefeller Republicans and the Bush Republicans and uh, uh, other Republicans. So I think we're living at a time when we're moving uh, toward extremes on both sides. And I think those of us who are liberal Democrats have a special obligation to confront the extremists on the left. And those of you who are moderate Republicans have an obligation to confront the radicals on the hard right. Um, so let's see if we have time for one more. Does constitutionality matter to the overwhelming majority of lawyers and judges? I can't count, but I think the answer is probably no. I think that for the vast majority of lawyers, certainly, probably judges, though I'm not sure, the Constitution is a tactic for bringing them to the results they want. The worst villain of this and the person who has taught so many people this kind of result-oriented constitutional analysis is my former colleague, Professor Lawrence Tribe, uh, who has never come to a constitutional conclusion that I'm aware of 
uh, that differs from his uh, politics. For him, the Constitution is a way of justifying his uh, ideological and, and political goals. And he has taught students that for, for, for many years. I, I taught them exactly the opposite, and it's to uh, Harvard's uh, virtue that both of us served on the faculty together and we're actually, we're actually friends for a while today. It's, it's become different with uh, the name calling that he's in, engaged in. And I'm still hoping that maybe um, uh, he'll return to uh, being able to analyze constitutional issues uh, objectively, neutrally, and passing the shoe on the other foot test. Uh, see you tomorrow.